Welcome to Now I See, a place where people share their eye-opening moments and how it changed the way they see themselves, their world, and their place in it. We hope you'll be encouraged and inspired by the stories you hear and challenged to see things in a whole new way, too. Sit back and enjoy this show that we've prepared especially with you in mind. I'm your host, Kit McCarty. Our guest today is Frank Sarabia. Welcome, Frank. Thank you. Good to be here. I'm glad you are. I'm so excited to introduce my friend Frank to you. Frank was born and raised in Dallas, earned a Bachelor's of Business from the University of North Texas, which he employs professionally in the areas of finance and insurance. A former convict, he now serves as a minister of the gospel and a licensed chemical dependency counselor, helping people find freedom from substance abuse and other types of addictions through faith in Christ. He helps people get back on their feet by teaching them the practices of financial planning and fiscal responsibility. His story is one of redemption and reconciliation, and I can't wait for him to tell it. But before he does, let me say, Frank, I see you as joyful, open, honest, authentic, patient, and understanding. Whenever I see you, you are smiling and laughing, surrounded by people who love and admire you. It's good to be you. How do you see yourself? Um... I see myself as a fast learner, uh, cautious, um, which is something my wife uh, explained to me that I wasn't quite aware of, and then consistent, uh, whether you know whether I was doing good or doing bad, I, I try to be consistent at it. <laughs> I do like that about you. My mama always said, whatever you do, do it well. I'm surprised that you see yourself as cautious. I would have said you were more of a risk taker. Have you always been cautious? No. See? I became cautious after my stint in prison because, you know, you have to be after that because your whole life has been ruined up to that point. So I was risk, you know, I didn't care. I was, was, let's do it. That's what I would have said. I still see that. There's still portions of that there, but because now I'm married and, and there's a balance now. Yeah. She'll let me know, hey, this, this, and this. And that has, in turn, allowed me to be a little more cautious in, in how I approach people. Because not everybody's good for you. Yeah, good. And so I have to be aware of that, especially where I come from, prison, drugs, the streets. Uh, I have to be aware of who I surround myself with. So, Oh, that's so true. You've got to be cautious if you're handling other people's finances. Something I learned in the finance world, they say it's stealth, it's wealth. Yeah. So you're right. You got to be real cautious, especially around your wealth. Well, tell me about yourself. You said you're a fast learner and a risk taker. Tell me a little bit more about how those things showed up in your life. Well, it came about, so uh, my, my dad left when I was one and a half, maybe two years old. So he abandoned my mom. Uh, I, I was just left relegated to the streets, essentially. Now my mom, my mom did end up remarrying my sister, my sister's dad, and he turned out to be a drug dealer, which is how I in turn got involved in the trade. Mm-hmm. Uh, and just being on the streets, uh, it's a do or die on the streets. So you know that's where a lot of the risk taking and and uh, 
not really caring about life because my mom would say that to me. You just you just don't seem to remember anything or not care about life. And I'm like, eh, it's not that. It's just that I, I try to focus on what I can control and anything else that I cannot control. There's It's not even worth my time because there's nothing I can do about it. So why worry? Why create anxiety that's unnecessary? It's foolish. You knew that as a kid. Yeah. <laughs> and so... Uh, you know, being exposed to my sister's dad, and, and he's the one that got me my, my first ounce of cocaine and my first ounce of marijuana, and he should, showed me where he hid it. We had a second house that was br- brought with drug proceeds. I thought that my mom and stepdad were doing well, but no, they all of these houses that were being bought were, you know, behind that. And so, uh, you know, and then the streets, you got to be, you, you got to be, you got to have your head on a swivel. Uh, and, and and you gotta you, you gotta protect yourself. So that that involves risk, you know. Um, especially being around people that, uh, you know, especially with large drug transactions, those are those are uh, harrowing because you got large amounts of cash that you got to sit there and count. They got to weigh all these drugs. Even and, as a kid, you know, sometimes weighing now you know three, four hundred thousand, even a million that that takes time. Yes, you know, so you're in a hotel room. And it's full of tension because nobody trusts each other and anybody can die at the drop of a dime. So, uh, you know, just taking a risk was something that I was, you know, uh, I just, I was just not a fearful guy. I was never fearful. Wow. I would say that I would have been fearful all the time. When were you first exposed to drugs and drug trafficking? So my sister was born when I was... 10, because we're 10 years apart, and I started to find out about the drugs around 14, 15. Yeah, and so I, you know, needless to say, I became very popular in our neighborhood because, you know, hey, everybody knew where to get the goods, and so uh, I enjoyed that, actually. (laughs) It's, it it is, it is, but, uh, you know, again, uh, you create enemies because people... Uh, you know, there's a lot of jealousy in, in that world. Um, but uh, I, I tried to go to school. Uh, I, I tried to go to a community college, but, you know, unbeknownst to me, I, I met more drug addicts in college than I did on the streets. Wow. I'm talking about students, professors. Uh, I even met an officer. Wow. Uh, and so that that, to me, it created a distaste for school. And I eventually quit, got a job, and... Uh, on top of selling drugs, got a night job, and um, my actually my life went downhill from there because the people at the job that I was at, you know, they were just as bad as me. They, you know, they they were doing their things, of course, differently. You know, uh, drugs, uh, a few other things. Um, There's a certain amount of power and influence that can really be a heady thing for a kid. Wow. I would think that with such a dismal outlook, finding drugs and corruption everywhere you looked, how did you find the courage to keep going? Uh, trying to eat. Awesome. Just basic life necessities. <laughs> yeah, just I needed somewhere to sleep. I had to eat. Uh, I had to stay alive. Uh, and, you know, we would make enough to try to just get by. Uh, and then, you know, when we made large amounts, it would just go as fast as we made it. So, uh, but yeah, it was just trying to, I say it now, I've used it to this day, but we, we were trying to keep steaks in the freezer. <laughs> <laughs> wow. 
yeah, it, it was rough, but I was just never fearful. I was never really the scary type, and I, I don't know. Well, I'm surprised you were so fearless. With so much uncertainty, I would have been scared of everything and everyone all the time. You know, the way that, that, that when I ended up in prison is uh, I could have actually not went, but my partner who we were we were doing transactions with was one night he he had to go to the Carrollton no no Louisville and he was drunk and he had a connection up there and I was like ah, should I just let him drive on his own which, which, should I, which what I should have did was just let him go on his own and but no I drove him up there and, uh, and that's where we we got caught and by the Louisville Police Department the feds Denton uh, and I lived in Dallas so of course, once I crossed the county line, that made it federal, and so I, I was a. That was a big turning point for me because for the next year and a half, you know, I was in a cell, uh, trying to you know evaluate life and figure out what was going to happen, because uh, my mom, of course, you know, didn't uh, didn't want to help me. Uh, she said, "This not this is not what I <laughs> what I taught you." I'm like, well. You didn't teach me a whole lot of anything. You were never around, so uh, that didn't work out. I had some uncles who came to see me, but, of course, they weren't going to get me out. And uh, I ended up getting a 12-year sentence. Uh, they wanted to give me 25, but I fought it, and I'm like, no. So they came back with 12. I was like, that's reasonable. I'm tired of being in here. i got to try to do something with this. So uh, that was my turning point. And then at, in prison, there's a lot of Christians all of a sudden. Uh, and they tried to tell me about Jesus, and I, and my answer to them was, while I'm in here, I'm not going to serve Christ out of fear. I'm not going to serve Christ because I'm scared. I'm not going to serve Christ just because I'm in prison. I wasn't serving him when I was out on the streets. I'm not going to serve him while I'm in here mm-hmm. just because I'm scared or just because I want to get out. No, I knew what I was doing. I knew the consequences behind it, and I would reject him. Somebody sent me a Bible, and I did not know how expensive that Bible was until... Uh, here recently, not too long ago, it was the Thompson Chain Reference Bible that they sent me. Wow. <laughs> and I found out later on it was a $120 Bible. It was from a family friend who had tried to get me off drugs a long time ago. And I, I was stunned that they would send me something like that. They really wanted to see me saved. And, of course, I read it, never knowing the impact that it would have on my life, not only there but later on in life because his word does not come back void. And a lot of things that I would read in there, I'm like, man, uh, uh and one time I remember reading late at night, and uh, I caught myself almost weeping, but I was like, you can't do that here. It's not the place to weep. And But that's when I knew that there was something, stirring, something changing. But again, I wasn't going to just become a Christian. You know, the jailhouse Christians is what they call them. I did not want to have that label. And so I didn't serve them in there. Um, was that your first exposure to Christianity? My mom was a, my mom was a Catholic, and she got converted, and then she tried to get me to go and and you know I just I just wasn't down for Jesus, you know there was no uh, Roman Catholicism. Um, even as a child, I was like, you know what they they're not really uh, they 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 tell you what the Bible says. They don't encourage you to read it, and so and then I remember one time I. I walked into the, I guess they have these little places in the back where the ministers hang out. And I remember walking in there and I caught the, the priest, you know, smoking cigarettes and drinking whiskey. And I was told to scram. And so 
at that point, I didn't believe much in the Roman in the Roman Catholic okay. Church. I was like, eh. When my mom got converted, uh, some things went on between me and the pastor's daughters that probably shouldn't have happened. So that, to me, was like, well, these aren't good people. This is not where I would want to be. And it was a Baptist church, and, and they would try to get me to invite me to these events. I'm like, no, you guys are weird. You guys, <laughs> you guys, I don't know y'all. I know people from the street. I don't know people from the church. I can't, I can't vibe with you guys. It's not going to work. And I would never hang around with them. I probably should have. But uh, that was the first exposure was my mom. when she would try to tell me I'm sitting there rolling joints. I'm like, man, you and Jesus are both crazy. Mm-hmm. Not knowing that I was the one that was the fool. <laughs> You're going to find inconsistency and hypocrisy everywhere you go. I mean, people are people. Yeah, I didn't know that back then. So you found the Lord in prison. I found the Lord at Victory Outreach. Right. So it's a ministry. uh, When I got out of prison, one of the stipulations was that I, I had to go to college. They, I got, they said, you're, you're very young. We try to stop recidivism, and we insist that you go to college. I'm like. I'm like, college, man. So being, you know, that I'm, you know, being observed by the law, (laughs) I went to school. uh, And this is when I knew that the Lord was with me. As soon as I left the parole office, I went down the street to El Central College. I talked to a lady, uh, one of the administrators there, and I explained to her, my sister's a Hispanic lady, and she was... I guess my story just stunned her, and she led me by hand literally through the enrollment process, through everything that you need to do to get into college. She took me directly to the financial aid office. Uh, We skipped everyone in line, and we went to the office, and she said, this gentleman needs financial aid, and he needs a job. Before I walked out of there, I was enrolled full-time, had financial aid and had a job in the in the in a computer lab. And the lady at the computer lab, I explained to her my story because I wanted to know who she was dealing with. She says, "You know what? Everybody deserves a second chance and a clean slate. You know, when you start for me, that's what you're gonna get. And right now, you have a hundred percent my respect. If I start losing it for you, it's gonna be your own fault." And so that's where I learned to try to love and respect people off the top because first of all, you don't know them. You got to give them the opportunity to, you know, to prove who they are to you. And so that's where I was like, man, I got to truly. Wow, that was a big change for you from the mean streets to the halls of higher education. Yeah, not only that, I had a, I had street lingo (laughs) when I went to school. And and that was, that was another uh, turning point where I had a professor, a a history professor, and uh, I became her history student of the year over time. But at one point, but between you know where I started and getting there, she hemmed me up in a in a stairwell in a corner. She says, "This street talk that that that's coming out of your mouth every day." She says, "In real life, it's not going to get you anywhere. Uh, it's making you look bad in front of your professors. Uh, you know, you you're gonna you're gonna influence some of these minds that that don't know any better down the wrong road." And she gave me a list of stuff, and, and I felt so convicted that after that day, I never talked because I knew better than to talk street and then to talk educated. I read enough books in prison to know how to form sentences, how to be grammatically correct, and how to say things and how to enunciate. I just didn't want to do it. I had a, a you know an ego and a, and a, and a, a, rep. a rep to try to keep. 
Which at that point, you know, now I know it, just, it doesn't matter. Uh, but I remember that was another point. I said, you know, I'm gonna I'm gonna talk like a like a normal human being, <laughs> try to communicate in a way that that you know that's effective. And and so there was a lot of people in in my college car- career uh, that helped me a lot. Uh, another example was my English professor. <laughs> I remember that class. I'm like, who, who who wants to write? Nobody wants to write and. I learned something about myself that day is that she she gave us just a, like a free writing. So the first hour, I want you just to write. I come to find out that my professor really enjoyed my writing. She pulled me, she's told me to wait and she, we talked about it. She says, you, this is one of the most uh, expressive pieces that I've ever, that I've ever read. She says, you even cussed in here. I don't ever see, I don't ever hear cuss words in people's writing. I'm like, well, that's just how I felt. She says, that's good because most people don't express how they feel on paper to the extent that you did. And so she says, you know, I appreciate it. She says, and I don't know why she threw that in there, but she said, uh, in my class, though, uh, you know, we want to do things, you know, the right way. So uh, there's no uh, there's no cheating in this class. And what she meant by cheating was uh, plagiarism. Mm-hmm. Long story short, uh, that class was getting a bit rough. And I remember one of our last assignments was to write something, but uh, I found it on the internet, and I copy and pasted it, and I turned it in. And I remember a couple of days later, I was at home asleep, and I got a, I got a phone call, and it was her, my professor. And I was like, "What, what do you? How can I help you? She says, can you come up to the school? I said, but why? Why do I need to go up to the school? I already knew why, but I wanted to hear it from her mouth. And she was the type that says, "I'll never tell you what I need you to come up to the school for." But she told me, she says, "Well, I ran your paper through the." you know, through this program that I have, and, and I caught you. I was like, oh, man. And so I went up there, and we talked. And, and her, her, her theory or her, uh, her thinking was that if you, uh, if you get caught, you're going to fail. Uh, but because of, of how I was raised and because of how I can influence people, I talked her out of it. And she says, you turn in one more paper, and if it's not, you know, plagiarized, I will grade Jesus, but you, you're eliminated from ever getting an A. And so I did finally turn in my paper that I wrote, and she gave me a B. She said, did you still write good? It's just, you know, I don't know what happened. I said, I was lazy. I didn't want to. I just wanted to, I wanted the easy way out, I told her. I says, but uh, that was not the easy way out. I love that as you tell your story, there were people all along the way who saw you, who heard you who stood with you, who believed in you and believed that there was more to you than meets the eye. We're going to take a break right now. And when we come back, we're going to hear more of Frank's amazing story. In Frank's story, as well as ours on the Now I See podcast, there were people all along the way who helped us get where we are today. We're grateful for our friends who have been with us from the beginning, liking, subscribing, leaving great ratings and reviews, sharing this podcast with their friends, and posting their thoughts on our threads at Now I See Pod. We're also grateful to be adding more chairs to the conversational circle each week when new friends join us for eye-opening conversations like this one. If you haven't visited our website at nis.media, please take a moment to do that today. Check out our episodes you may have missed, like our conversation last week with Bible teacher Carla Galanos 
on the topic of friendship. You can find some great reads on our featured authors page by clicking the book icons. They will take you directly to the author's own site for more information and purchase points. And don't forget to check out our featured causes page for information about people and organizations making a difference in our communities and around the world. Listeners like you can make a big impact when you lend your support. They, and we, appreciate you. Now, back to our show today with Frank Sarabia as he pulls back the curtain on today's drug culture. We're back from our break with our guest today, Frank Sarabia. Let's pick up where we left off. Frank, right before your big turnaround. So right after I graduated uh, El Centro is where I had like a little, a little slip up, if you will. Okay. And, and my friend, uh, I remember going to her and uh, that's where I found out the Victory Outreach was through her. Okay. Um, her name is Amira. And uh, I remember out being out and about, and I, it was on it was on a binge, and I was I was already shooting drugs at that point. Mm-hmm. And for some reason or another, I went to visit her, and uh, and she saw me. She saw that I had been up for days. Uh, just imagine somebody who had been up for days, you know, five o'clock shadow, bloodshot eyes, you know, needle tracks on their arms, skinny from not eating, and instead of sitting there and uh, you know, and, and you know, judging me and putting me down, she says, "Look, this is what we're gonna do. We're gonna feed you." And what she did, we went somewhere. I can't remember where we were, but she bought me a lot of food, and I ate really well. And then she says, "And I'm gonna send you to the place called Victory Outreach because these guys just did some uh, work on my kitchen. They did a good job, and they told me about their ministry, and it's aimed at the drug, uh, the drug addicted, the prostitute, the gangbanger." And I went there. Uh, and that's where I learned to pray. That's where I learned to focus and dig in on God. That's where I learned uh, to look, to focus, not look, to focus on Christ, not look into the left, not look into the right. And uh, although I didn't agree with a lot of what they what they did, I did pick up a lot of things in that ministry that do me good today. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that was the biggest turning point for me to try to 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 follow Christ. Now I didn't it wasn't as aggressive as it was when I got to Grace Point because I had just known about him. I didn't really know who is this Jesus guy. I used to make fun of him, but but who really is he? And and I got to read my word and and I remember thinking that I wanted to leave and I can't find the scripture, but it's in that Bible and it's highlighted. And I was like, Lord, I want to go. And I remember always hearing, well, wherever you go, there you are. And there's a scripture that says that I will make, he says, I will bless you in the land of your affliction. And he says, and through that scripture, he told me, you're not going anywhere. I have work for you to do here in Dallas. So get that out of your mind. And as I would grow and I'm, I, I wanted to be led by him. And I, I ended up learning that if you want direction in your life, that's God, you know, that's God given, you got to read the word. You got to stay in the word. And I would tell people, if you want, you know, if you want the direction, you got to stay in the word. Otherwise you're not going to, how will you get to know the Lord? How will you get to know where he wants you to go if you're not in the word? And so that's one of the things I would try to stay in the word and, you know, and just 
absorb it because it's powerful. And it really helped me in a lot of areas. But but it was my friend at that point who really, and I think of her to this day. And uh, Did it ever get so bad that you thought about ending it all? I don't think about suicide, but when I was dealing, when I was shooting drugs, mm-hmm. I thought about it a lot. And I'll never, ever judge anybody for thinking that way. You know, I just want to end it all. Because even before then, I was like, ah, suicide is the coward's way out. But when I got drug addicted and I started to think that way, it changed my perspective completely. Sometimes people are in a position where they're hopeless, and that's the only thing they can think about. I get it. Sometimes it just hurts so bad you want to make it stop. And I never understood that until I had to go through that pain, mm-hmm. intense pain myself. Mm-hmm. Uh, but no, through, through that ministry, I ended up uh, seeking the Lord. I still had some ups and downs to go, but, mm-hmm. but that was the main uh, turning corner, if you will, to, to the Lord was the Lord was reeling me in at that point. Mm-hmm. That He was reeling me in. I felt it in my spirit. I was just like, how much longer before I get off? You know, the, the alcohol, the the drugs. Because again, I still had some ups and downs before I, it was all over and done with. But how long was it like that? Two thousand ten. You think? Yes, two thousand ten. I graduated from uh, from. Uh, <laughs> UNT in 2010, December 2010. So from 03 to 2010, it was still a struggle. So for about another seven years, not another 10 years almost, because we still. In 2013, yeah. you still struggled. Yeah, I still struggled. So yeah, about at least another 10 years. <coughs> and uh, yeah, it, was, it was tough. When did you decide that you were in good enough place to become a licensed counselor and make a difference in the lives of others who were struggling in the same place you had been? I did it for me. Um, forget the world. I did it for me. I did it for me because, number one, I wanted to get off the drugs. Yeah. Number two, I wanted to be around a, a group uh, of people that I didn't know that I could be completely open with uh, because that cuts back on a lot of the judgment. They're like, well, I don't know this guy. I don't know what to say. So uh, I did it for me because I wanted to get off the drugs. Because all of these other programs that I had tried, I had tried CR through one of my actually personal doctors that I went to go see as a doctor, and she found out and made me go through CR. She would even go pick me up. Uh, but it didn't work, and I tried the, the steps. I tried you know, these other things that the parole officer would want me to do, and none of it just ever worked. And when I went to UNT and, and, and I, we went through that program, there were so many other options that people don't hear about that. I, I started picking stuff from different programs that worked for me. Now, I was able to slow down, you know, a lot on the, on the dope to where, you know, I would be homeless and all that. So I was kind of functioning. And that's how I met my wife. And uh, she knew me. I was still doing... I was, uh, in fact, one day I was partying in Austin. I got stranded, and my wife, before we were ever married, I called her and said, hey, I'm in a jam, and uh, I wasn't really involved with her. Like, you know, I didn't really, hey, this is my girl. It's kind of a big ask. And I, and I did, and, and, and she went all the way down there, and I still had Coke on me on the way back. And that right there changed my perspective about her. I'm like, this, this, this woman loves me because uh, I wouldn't go and get her. For four four hour drive just to no and uh 
And so that, to me, I, I was like, I found there was like some hope finally. I was like, man, I got a girl that, uh, she loves me. I mean, who would do that? Who would go out to Austin to pick? Nobody would do that. And so that, to me, was a, a, another, uh, like a ray of hope, if you will. Yeah. Uh, and then uh, our friends, Marisol and Jason, I don't know if you know them, they used to go to the outreach, too. But they left, and then me and she left, and then I left. And then later on in life, we bumped with each other again, and, and she asked us to to come visit the church. And I'm like, you know what? I'm done. After the outreach, I was like, I'm done with church, man. I don't want to. And, and, and but, but out of respect for, for Jason and Marisol, I went, but I told my wife, I, I don't want nothing to do with it. I don't want no friends. I don't want to get to know Jesus. Jesus don't love me. Who, what, what does he want with a bum like me? I can't keep it together. But, you know, I did not know that that's the very people that Jesus... Yeah, he came to save those very people. And, uh, sorry. Those very people he came to save. And, you know, and again, I'm I'm consistent because had I not, even, even though I was drinking, even though I was doing coke, even though I would show up drunk and high in the service, the Woodens, the princes, they always loved me. They never judged me. They always hugged me. Even if I stank like alcohol, then people never pointed a finger. They never put me down. On the contrary, they said, you know, the Lord will change you. But, you you know, you got to, Pastor Wooden always says, you got to give them something to work with. You got to give them something to work with. And I remember, you know, he says, if you want to grow, you got to listen to his word. And And I remember the first time that I started listening to the I would drive to work 15 minutes. I would listen to 15 minutes of the Bible. And then that's how it all began. Uh, and then I remember the day that I was like, I'm tired of this. I'm tired of poking my arms with needles. I'm tired of smoking. I'm tired of snoring. I'm tired of drinking. And it was around that time that I that I asked the Lord, uh, I said, hey, man, get, get me off this. I can't do it no more. I think I'm going to die. And that was it. And then I remember a couple weeks after that, Robert and, and Daniel, I was <laughs> I was sitting in the corner, and Robert's coming one way, and Brother Daniel's coming the other way. And I'm from the street, so I already know that they're coming. At, I said, they're coming after me, man. And so I tried to go out another way, but then they they make the zigs and the zags, and they cut me off. And they're like, hey, you want to be part of the Usher team? I'm like, uh, I didn't want to say no. They had been so kind to me, so I was like, I guess. You did realize that as you committed to being an usher at Grace Point Church in South Irving, there were going to be a lot of eyes on you, not just the pastors and their wives, the worship team up front, but the other ushers in the back, and your new friends and their families, and all the other members there in the middle. They'd expect you to be there every week. You knew that, right? Well, by, by, by that time, I, we were already, yeah, by that time, we had already been, I don't want to say committed, but we had, to me, the freedom and the love uh, and, and, and the what is that word, the the sanctification that was going on in my life behind Christ, I said, I, I don't want to run away from that. Yes, that to me is, is far valuable than gold. I mean, and I would come here, you know, I would do this, you know, and I did, I just kept going. I love to do it. I do it for free. And uh, something happened, and then the usher leader, he couldn't, he couldn't do it, and and I just happened to be around. I wasn't saying nothing, but I, I, would, I was listening to... Jody, she's the, of course, the dream team coordinator, and a couple other people talk about, you know, the head usher not being, and then 
She looked at me. She says, Frank, would you like to be the head usher? And I was like, and there was nobody else around. So I was like, well, I, I suppose I, I, could, I could give it a try. And, uh, and I did it. And it was something that, that I liked and I was good at. And, and I loved the people. And I was able to write stuff you know, from the Bible and share with them. And, and I liked it. And then over time, uh, you know, that's just something I would I would do for free. And then over time, you know, they they asked me if if I wanted to become more involved, and I, I love Patrick and Jody. I love you know Robert and Rebecca. I love Jack and and Shelly and and Michelle and Randy. And so I'm like, yeah, man, you guys are like my family. I know we don't talk a lot, but but still, it's there. And so I didn't know what they were talking about, and and then they approached me one day and they said, do you want to be part of the staff? And I was like. I had to look around. I'm like, you talking to me? Because <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm of the mind, man, you just pick the worst dude in the church uh, to be, you know, in a position, you know, to help people. And in my mind and in my heart, I was like, man, you got the wrong guy. But Jody said and Patrick said that, you know, we've been, we've been watching you and how you serve the people and how you love them. And, and you know, she says, we want to give you a raise. And I didn't know what that meant. Cause I'd have did it for free, you know, uh, and I, I only say that is because the Lord was so good in my life that even in my sin, He kept me alive. And I look back and I can see certain points in my life, certain people that I know that it was the Lord put in my life so that I would not die, so that I would be where I'm at today. And so, you know, how everything involved at the church is just so beautiful to me, and and now I serve and 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 and, and I try to. And I just love on the people like they loved me. And I'll try to smile, give them a smile, and just uh, help them with whatever I can. Uh, and, of course, you know, uh, the finances. One time, one time the pastors brought, this, brought the Dave Ramsey, and uh, I latched on to it. So the first time pastor taught it, the second time I picked it up, and we taught it, we were, we taught it ever since uh, whenever it was, when it was available. And... That's how I got into the Dave Ramsey, you know, trying to get my finances because finances were a mess at that point. So, I mean, you're buying drugs all the time, buying alcohol. It hurts the, the finances, excuse me. Wow, what an amazing story. I've only ever seen you on this side of the victory, where you're clean and sober, where you're serving with abandon, where people love you and you love them right back. Do people at church know your backstory? Most people don't, and when they found out, they're they're stunned. They're they're like, "You prison?" I'm like, "Yeah, man." Uh-huh. You know, not only that, I I started out in prison. And my you know, people, they try to scare me straight. I remember my my mom took me to jail one time. I can't remember who, and I'm like, "This is not working, man." These cops, you know. First of all, I know they can't put their hands on me, <laughs> so you've already lost. You know. Second of all, I could, you know, it just didn't work. I was like, no, this this is this is a sham. <laughs> but I remember that, and it should have worked for the average kid. It probably would have worked. But you know, when your father leaves you at one, and your mom's never there because she's got to provide, and all you know is the streets, man. You don't, you just don't become the scary guy. You know, the streets toughen you up, whether you like it or not. I am, I am. Well. I think having been in difficult places gives you a wonderful understanding and empathy for people who struggle, for people who are afraid, for people who are looking over their shoulders, for people who are caught in addictions and are in bondage to their hurts, 
for people who have no hope and don't know where to turn. That's where I see you shine. What would you say to people who are struggling? Keep going to your church. Uh, keep focus on Christ. Don't ever give up. Um, There's times I wanted to give up, but you know the Lord will intentionally put people in your life to let you know that He's still there, or He might even show you something in your own personal life to let you know I'm still here. Uh, I remember a moment I was. I, this is one of the few times I tried to connect with my sister. And I actually was living with her. And I remember one time in the little room that she let me live with her, I was shooting drugs. And and I'll never forget the moment. I remember I had shot some up and some coke. And I sit on the bed and I saw this light from the ceiling. Lord, as my witness, it was dark, pitch black, but it was a light, like it was daylight. And it showed up on the flat ceiling and then it started coming down and... And I promise this was not me. I didn't do it. It's just my body automatically got to the ground and became prone. And I started to cry. And that was a moment that I heard the Lord. I says, I'm still here. I love you. You got to stop. And uh, and then it went away. But then, you know, needless to say, I, it ruined my high. And, <laughs> and then, the, you know, the, the, the next few days, you know, we're just different. I ended up leaving my sister's house, moving away, because, again, we, we never got along. Mm-hmm. Family was dysfunctional. and But that was one of those moments in my own life. I, I was lost, and I was like, man, I need to know that he's here. And I think he knew that, and that's I, I've never had an experience like that before. And it was it was uh, supernatural to me, because I was so scared out of my mind. Mm-hmm. Where does light come from? But mm-hmm. later on, I knew it was the Lord. Mm-hmm. Uh but you, you you can't give up. Don't give up. Find somewhere where you fit in. You know, uh, that's what I had to do when I went to school. There, the purpose was number one to get a, a degree. Uh, well, number one to get off the dope. Number two, if I did happen to get a degree, great, uh, which I ended up doing. And uh, but uh, don't give up. Don't give up on yourself. You know, a lot of people may have given up on you, but you can't give up on yourself. You're all you got. You're all you got, and then the Lord loves you. I mean, it says that he comes to save the sick. And so if you're sick and you're hurting, he loves you, and he's full of miracles still to this day. In spite of what anybody may say, he is a miracle-working God, and I only say that because every time I look in the mirror, I see one. I've been hurt by the church, but I can't imagine life without it. I love gathering each week for worship, teaching, fellowship, and prayer. My church friends are the people who've been there for me when I needed them most. What would you say to people who've been hurt by the church, who have seen the hypocrisy, or have been made to feel unwelcome because they're afraid they're too messed up to fit in? The church is going to hurt you. Society's, society hurts you. Teachers have hurt you. You know, when when you're asked, when you're at a club and you're sitting there at a movie theater and you know they ask you to move from one seat to this, that hurts people. But you still go back to the movies. You still go, you know what I mean? So my mama taught me one of the things that she says, look, son, you need to learn to govern your emotions. You do not ever let them govern you. Uh, and I, I believe that's, that's biblical. Uh, because if you look at the... The, the gifts of the Spirit, the last one is self-control. And it's the last one for a reason because it's the most difficult one to attain. 
Uh, so when you go to church, make sure that your focus is God in Christ. Because the, the people, number one, they're already, they're already broken and busted up, just like you. So we all need Christ. And if somebody hurts you, man, just... You know, just you know, pick yourself up. There, you know, what they say is not valid, especially if it's tearing you down. Ephesians four twenty nine, uh, I call it building four twenty nine because it talks about building people up, yeah. not to let any com- corrupt communication come out of your mouth, but to edify folks. Mm-hmm. And so that's where I'm cautious, because uh, I, I, I can clearly pick up on people who who will edify, and I can clearly pick up on people that still need work. Mm-hmm. And, uh, that's, that's most of us. <laughs> yeah. But there's some people who, you know, who are real good at the only thing that they'll say is like, hey, man, you know, I want to lift you up. I'm here to love. You know, and then there's some of the people who are just going to complain and, and, and people will be people. But, you know, that, if you allow it, will affect you. So you got to be able to say, hey, you know what, I'm going to shield myself from this. It doesn't matter. In the grand scheme of things, you know, uh, we're God's children. He created us in His image. If we can't wrap our mind around that and know that He's our Papa, then you know, to me, <laughs> life's a failure. If if you can't comprehend that, the Lord loves us. When we, you know, we we're gonna die, and I want to spend eternity with Him. I don't want to be here. You can have this world. I don't see nothing good in it. Uh, but keep keep going. I kept going. I would my. I kept going. I was drunk and high. I still kept going. I still kept going. I still kept going. And like Patrick Wooten said, I finally gave him something to work with, and that was all he needed, and here we are. Frank, you have been so open with us today, sharing not only the dark places in your past, but the light in which you now walk. We've learned a lot today from your experiences, perspectives, humor, candor, and hard-earned wisdom. You're going to have to come back and teach us some things about being cautious in our budgeting so we can be extravagant in our giving. Until then, thank you for opening our eyes to a drug culture that is all around us and giving us insights about how to find hope and healing for ourselves or those we love who might be struggling in it. And listeners, we'll see you again next week. We're so glad you were able to join us for today's compelling story. You can find out more about our guest today by reading our show notes or visiting our website, nis.media. You can also find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Special thanks to the team at Headset Radio for their technical expertise and to Becky Salazar for our bumper music. See you next week.